So let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. Lord, I just thank you for blessing our church with an outreach that goes to the world. And Lord, thank you that you have given us a way to do it. And thank you right now for your word that right now is not only going here in this sanctuary, but it's going to go all over the world by radio and to many, many people watching my streaming right now. And Lord, we just thank you for it and we pray your blessing on the sacred, holy word of God. For we know, Lord, this is your word. And it's God-breathed. And Lord, it's for our edification, exhortation, comfort, wisdom, knowledge, understanding. And I pray that you will set our feet on a solid theological rock tonight. And help us to understand your words so we can answer those who ask us questions. In Jesus' name, would you pray and just say, Lord, increase my wisdom tonight. Give me knowledge tonight. Give me understanding of the word of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're wiser already, amen. All right, thank you. Now, I'm just going to dive in. I, I didn't get to get to every single solitary question that came in, but I've gotten most of them. And uh, if, if I didn't get yours, I'm sorry, it's nothing personal, I'm just limited on time and brain power, okay? So let's, uh, let's just dive in. Now, I told you the one we were going to start with tonight. I told you about it last week, but let me read it again. This person says, this week, I watched my best friend pass away. My question is, does the spirit leave the body with the soul? Or do the spirit and soul stay as one? Now, what they want to know is what happens when a, when a Christian or anybody dies. What, what happens? You know, I've taught this several times, many times in my pastoral career, and I still encounter people who aren't clear on this. And you know why I think that is? Because we are fed so much stuff from the culture that is wacky, weird, unbiblical. And, and right now, in case you haven't noticed, our culture is very focused on spiritual things, just not the things of God. I mean, Satanism, witchcraft, I read recently of, of how many um, people have gone into uh, witchcraft in America. They somehow did a poll and how many people are now in Wicca, uh, witches and doing spells and all of this stuff. It's everywhere. So there's a lot of false information floating around about what happens when you die, what happens to your soul, what happens to your spirit, what, what happens to you. So um, let me just answer it from the Bible, which is my source of authority with all of these questions, all right? The Bible says that when a person dies, their spirit immediately slips into eternity. Whether or not they're saved, they still go into eternity. See, right now, you're an eternal human being. That is, the soul inside of you is eternal, whether you're lost or saved. You're eternal. You already have eternal existence, all right? James, for instance, James tells us, as the body without the spirit is dead, as the body without what, everybody? The spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, notice he says, there is a spirit indwelling our bodies, and when that spirit leaves the body, the body is then dead, 
what animates you tonight, allows you to listen to me, move around, think, and, and live a life on this earth, is your spirit is in your body, the life, the life that God gave you. It says God created Adam and breathed into him the breath of life, breath of life, and he became a living soul. So how are we alive? Our spirit is within us right now. The, the spirit that God created. Now, let me talk a little bit about that spirit that's in us. The spirit is that part of us that is dead in trespasses and sins prior to coming to Christ. When you and I were born, we were born with our inner man, our spirit man, unplugged from the life of God. You know, we understand plugged and unplugged. We understand you plug a lamp in and the, and the light comes on. You unplug it and the light goes off. There's no power source. The Bible says we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity because of Adam's fall. Therefore, our spirit is dead. Our body's alive, heart's beating, eyes are seeing. We, you know, we grow up and, and do life. But until we come to Christ, our spirit man is dead in trespasses and sins, unplugged from the life of God. Then when we are saved, our spirit is made alive. Look at the Bible says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us what everybody? Made us alive. Let's read it together. Say it again. Made us alive. Made what alive? I'm already thinking, walking, heart beating and all that. So what came alive? My spirit. My spirit came alive. When you and I got saved, for the first time in your entire life, you were alive, genuinely alive. He made us alive with Christ when we were dead, when we were dead in transgressions. Now, the Bible teaches that when a Christian dies, their spirit immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. Listen to what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust from which we are all made, all right? He made Adam out of the dust of the ground and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit, read it with me, returns to God who gave it, all right? So when the body dies, the spirit returns to God. Now, Paul himself stated he is confident in his eternal destiny, and he longs for the day when he can be absent from the body and present with the Lord. To be absent from one's body simply means the spirit is separated from the body at death and moves into its eternal abode, either heaven with the Lord or hell separated from God for eternity. But there is no in-between. There is no soul sleep. There is no second chance. There's no purgatory to work your sins off. Can I say that again? There's no purgatory to work your sins off. That is a Catholic doctrine that is not biblical. They did not get that out of the New Testament you have in your hand. There's no purgatory where you work it all off and then go to heaven one day. When you die, it's too late to, to do anything about the condition of your soul. When you're, if you're saved, you go right in the presence of the Lord. If you're lost, it's too late. It's eternally too late. The Bible says it's given unto a man to die once, and after this, the judgment. 
So our spirit, right now, you're, you're alive because your spirit is alive in you. Now, when Jesus, I'll give you another example. Remember when he raised that young girl, Jairus' daughter, and it says that Jesus walked into the room and all these mourners were carrying on and Jesus said, don't worry about it. She's, she's not dead. She's only asleep. And, and uh, he was talking about, that's the way he viewed death because he knew he was going to raise her from the dead. They mocked him, ridiculed him because they had taken her pulse. They had seen that she had quit breathing. She was dead as dead can be. And the Bible says Jesus went into the room with Peter, James, and John shut the door, took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Now read verse 55 with me. First three words, her spirit returned. You get that? And at once she stood up. So what did Jesus do? And only Jesus can do this. Jesus called her spirit that had departed and gone to God back into her body and she was resurrected. That's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? Yeah. In in Jesus' career, he ruined a lot of good funerals. Right? He ruined Lazarus' funeral, ruined this girl's funeral, ruined uh, the the widow's son's funeral. Everywhere Jesus went, the dead got up. Because that's just Jesus. He gets the dead back up. Satan kills people. Jesus brings them back to life. Amen? Now question, church, where had her spirit gone? It was gone. It came back. It says right there, it came back. It returned. Well, since Jesus had not yet been crucified and risen from the dead, we can only assume her spirit had gone to the good portion of Hades that I've talked to you about. When Jesus touched her, her spirit returned to her body and she was resurrected. He'll do the same thing with all believers that have died when he returns. See, these little times that Jesus raised people from the dead was only a foreshadowing of what is coming on a massive scale. Jesus called people from death to life and their spirits returned to their bodies. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be such a massive resurrection from graveyards all over the world. It's going to be unbelievable. Though you are dead, yet shall you live if you place your faith in Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise tonight? Amen. Now, I've used this illustration many times, but maybe some of you weren't here, but I just can't find a better one, and I want you to get it. Now, I have here a glove. Now, the glove, pretend the glove is the body. It's the body. In the glove is a hand. That represents your spirit. As long as as the hand is in the glove, it's alive. It moves. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It's only moving because it's animated by my hand. All right. So the glove represents the body. The hand represents your spirit. As long as the spirit is in the glove, it's alive. But when the day comes... If you, if, if, if you or I pass away before Jesus returns, here's what happens. The hand, the spirit, comes out of the glove and goes up to the presence of the Lord. The glove, the body, is buried. Hand goes up, body goes down. Spirit goes up, 
body goes down. Are you with me? It's buried. Now, even if it's there 1,500 years and turns to dust, no big deal to God. Or if you're cremated, no big deal to God. Cremation only accelerates what happens if you're in the grave for 1,000 years anyway. I mean, I guarantee you the body of Paul is nothing but dust right now. Peter, James, and John. I'm not telling you to go get cremated. I'm just kind of telling you what I'm telling you. Anyway, now, now follow me here. So the hand, the spirit goes up into the presence of the Lord, the body into the grave. When Jesus returns, da, 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 and the trumpet blows, he calls the dead in Christ shall rise. Well, clearly the spirit is not rising because it's already in the presence of the Lord. It's the body that rises. And we receive instantly in a microsecond, a glorified body, just like Jesus's glorified body. He ate food, but he walked through doors without opening them. He, he appeared places without walking there. Well, I'm going to love that. No more. Let's go for a long walk. Just bloop. And you're there. All right. Now watch. So the body comes out of the grave and the spirit is rejoined to that body, a resurrected body, a glorified body, just like what happened to this girl. He, he grabbed her hand. He said, Tabitha, get up. Talitha Kumai, get up. And the spirit returned into her body and she sat up and then he said, give her some food. So when he comes again, the spirit will reenter a resurrected glorified body and up we will go into the presence of the Lord and meet the Lord in the air. All right. Are you with me? Come on. He deserves more than that. This is one of the reasons. Amen. This is one of the reasons that Jesus came. See, the resurrection of our body is one of the core doctrines of Christianity. That Jesus, oh, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? So the, the grave lost its victory over everybody who puts their faith in Christ. So when you die, body goes into the ground, spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. When Jesus returns, out comes from the grave the body. It's immediately glorified, a resurrected, glorified body. And your spirit reenters that body and you go up and meet the Lord in the air. And now you're a glorified, redeemed, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, no more depression, no more extra strength, etc. No more, because all sorrow and tears have been wiped away, because now we are glorified as, as he was glorified, and now we see him and we are like him, because we see him like he is. Amen. Next question. Here we go. The Bible says God created everything in the world. If this is true... Why is there so much sickness and human suffering? Has creation gone wrong or has God forsaken humanity altogether? Now first, yes, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. If you can't deal with Genesis 1-1, throw away the Bible. The rest of it's meaningless. If you can't accept Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is irrelevant to you. Genesis 1-1 is the deal breaker. God created. 
not evolution. God created. Not some big bang. God created. Genesis 1.1. Now, in the beginning, God created a pristine and perfect world. And after finishing his amazing creation, God said, it is good. It is good. But the Bible reveals that the first man, Adam, sinned. And the consequences, folks, were catastrophic when he sinned. Sin entered the world, writes Paul, and death through sin. And thus death spread to how many men? Because how many sinned? All sinned. So death was uh, put upon every person. Death was, was brought on every person by Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, a terrible door was opened, the door of death. And all things that cause death, sickness, disease, violence, and so forth. Let's face it, there's no way that God would have looked at his creation and said, it is good if there was death and if there was sickness and if there was disease. He wouldn't have said, that's good. He looked at a pristine creation and said, that's good. But now after the fall, he said, no, not so good. Because now man has fallen. But he knew it was going to happen. We know that because it says of Jesus, he was chosen before the foundation of the world to be our sacrifice lamb. But even though Adam fell into sin and the whole world with him, God has not, as the question wonders, God has not forsaken us. The Bible says that God promised a redeemer immediately after Adam's fall. Way back in Genesis 3.15 that I've taught on much on Wednesday nights, God said to the devil, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Well, we know on the cross, the devil struck his heel with the spike going through his heel. But on the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to the head of the devil. He removed from the devil his three primary weapons against mankind, death, hell, and the grave. When you get saved, though you die, yet shall you live. If you got saved, no hell for you. And if you got saved, you're not staying in the grave. Amen. Amen. So when God sent Jesus this promise of Genesis 3.15, which I've called the gospel in the garden, uh, this promise was fulfilled on the cross. God not only showed us how much he loves us, he also dealt a death blow to Satan. So yes, the world is filled with pain and suffering, no question about it. And I say sometimes uh, to people that know me, they'll tell you, I, I, I say fairly often, if I were God, I'd wrap this whole thing up today. I'd just wrap it up today because there's so much pain and suffering. And I don't know how God looks at some of the things he looks at and doesn't just wrap it up. But he's God and I'm not and I'm glad. Amen. Because his ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts than my thoughts. And when I don't understand his hand, I trust his heart. Okay? The world was filled with pain and suffering. But God did not forsake the world. You know how I know? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That tells you right there, God didn't forsake the world. One of my favorite verses, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Amen? When we were spitting in God's face and living like devils, Christ died for us. Amen? Can we thank the Lord tonight? Amen, amen. So one day, one day he's going to return. And when he does, not only will our suffering be gone, over with, finished, terminado, finito, but also all the creatures of the world that suffer, all of them, and they're all suffering. Romans 8 tells us all the creation is groaning, awaiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, awaiting for the return of Christ. The entire creation is groaning. You may not know it, but they are because they were not created to be in a world like ours is right now. Their world was to be pristine. They're dying. They die. They suffer. They bleed. They hurt. But when Jesus returns, the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. And there will be no more war, no more bloodshed. Are you ready? No more carnivorous activity. No more beast devouring beast. The Bible says they will all return to vegetarianism. Now, until then, that I ain't. All right? I'm just letting you know. Uh, Because God told me I can eat anything as long as I pray over it. And I put that to practice all the time. I had shrimp this week. Man, I had shrimp this week. And if I had been living in Old Testament times, I couldn't have had those shrimp. But thank God Paul came along and delivered me from that curse. I had a little bit of lobster too. Shrimp and lobster. I mean, bottom dwellers. I mean, the, the creepy crawly things that were forbidden. I ate them and they were wonderful. I thank Jesus for them. Amen. Come on, everybody. But when the Lord comes back, it's all going to change. It's all going to change. And it's going to return to the way that it was meant to be. It's going to return to the way God made it in the beginning. We're going to go back to the garden. Back to the garden. Amen. Does that excite you? Does that excite you? What, What is coming? Amen. Here's the next question. When reading the Bible, I always find myself stopping short because it's so hard to understand. Is it possible to be saved without knowing exactly who or what, for instance, Abraham, Isaac, David, Luke, John, Joseph, James, Simeon, Judas, and many of the names of the Bible played their parts in? In other words, if I don't know the Bible very well at all, can I still be saved? So all I could think to say was absolutely, because when I got saved, you know what I thought? I thought, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and all that were just fancy titles for a book. I didn't know they were places. I didn't know that they were people groups. I just thought they were titles to the books in the New Testament. In other words, I was dumb and dumber about the Bible. I was woefully ignorant about the Bible. But I tell you what, I was oh so saved. I was wonderfully saved. So, of course, you can be saved without knowing the Bible really well. Most people know very little about the Bible when they first come to Christ. Christianity is a faith in which we all grow from spiritual infancy to maturity. The Bible says to every new believer, watch this, new believers, those of you that are young in the Lord, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking. As what kind of babes? Newborn. So this is new believers. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. 
that you may grow thereby. See, you can't give a baby a T-bone steak, right? Because there's no teeth to chew it. He'd gum it to death, right? There's no teeth to chew it. The only thing that baby can do is drink milk. And, and, and Peter is, is drawing the same illustration. When you're newborn, when you're young in the Lord, you can't handle the meat of the word. You will choke on the meat of the word. So he says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now this means that the new believer is to fill himself or herself with the basic foundational teachings of scripture. Hebrews 6 gives us uh, six of them. Uh, salvation by faith, not works. That's, that's milk. Salvation by faith not by my works. Amen. That's, that's milk. Then the second one, faith in God, have faith in God. Just, you, you live now by faith and not by sight. That's the milk of the word. A third one, water baptism. Well, that's really the milk of the word because as soon as you're saved, you ought to be getting baptized in water. It's not even something we should pray about. You don't pray about it because Jesus commanded it. Amen. So that's the milk of the word. Spiritual gifts is a fourth one. Hebrews six mentions it's the milk of the word to understand that you've all got a gift. That's not meat, that's milk. But for some people, they've been saved 20 years and never been told, you have a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. The first time you say it to them, they look at you like a deer at headlights, like, what, I have a gift, I'm called? Yes, you're called and you're gifted. Every single child of God is gifted. That's the milk of the word. That's not the meat. Resurrection from the dead. We just talked about it. That's the milk of the word. Every new believer needs to understand what I just taught you, that Jesus is coming back. Your body is coming out of the grave. Your spirit is already in his presence. The two are going to be rejoined like the little girl that was raised from the dead. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's not meat. That's milk. Amen? Eternal judgment. That's another that's not meat, that's, that's milk. Eternal judgment. There is going to be a judgment. All mankind is going to be judged. How many of you know that's true? Uh, all mankind is going to be judged. John the Revelator saw it, a great white throne judgment. He that sat on that throne, from his face, earth and heaven fled away. The one on the throne is Jesus Christ himself, God the Son. Because Jesus said, the Father has given all judgment to me. So it's going to be Jesus on that throne, that great white throne judgment. It says death and hell are going to spew up out of them. They have been holding tanks for the souls of those who died lost. Are going to spew out of them the souls of those who died lost. And they're going to go right into the presence of Jesus at the great white throne judgment. He says he's going to open a book. It's called the book of life. And he's going to look for your name in that book. But nobody at the great white throne is going to be in that book. Because if you're saved, you don't go to the great white throne judgment. This is for the lost, and he's going to look. But he still will, and he'll say, your name's not here. Your name's not here. This is milk. Everybody should understand this. And when he says, your name's not here, they may say something like this. But, Lord, I was a a good person. Didn't I do 
wonderful works in your name. Didn't I, didn't I go to church? Didn't I, you know, I, I never got a ticket. I, I was a good man, a good woman, good father, good mother. I raised my kids right. I, I got them into college and I, I gave things to other people. I even gave to some charities, Lord. I, I was really a, basically a, a good person. I, 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 I was not selfish and I, and I did good things for others. I gave to, to children's hospitals and I, I did everything I could to, to be a good citizen. But he will say, but wait a minute, your name's not in the book. Well, well, why isn't it in the book? Because you didn't trust my son to forgive your sins. You rejected my son when you heard about him. You rejected him. And so now, this is it. And you're going to look and go, Joe's not here with me. Susie's not here with me. My mom's not here with me, who was a Christian her whole life. My dad's not here with me. Uh, I'm all alone. And what, what, what? And Jesus said, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's milk. Milk, not meat. Every believer should understand there's an approaching judgment. Our world is on the fast track to judgment. I mean, our world, folks, can I say it? It gets darker by the day. The things they're allowing, the things they're putting their seal. I mean, it's like a, it's like, it's like our, the Western culture and, and really the rest of the world is just slipping and sliding into hell. And so that's why here at Turning Point, we preach the gospel. We will never compromise the gospel. You must come to Christ. If you don't come to Christ, doesn't matter what you've done, how good you think you were, that you are only made righteous by the shed blood of the lamb. That's it. So what, what, a, what a horrible, I, I think that the description of the great white throne judgment is the scariest passages in the Bible. I think they are the scariest passages in the Bible. When I read them and I've read them, wow, decades in my life, I've read them hundreds of times. Still the scariest passage in the Bible describing that judgment because there's no more chance. It's over. It's done. How many of you are thankful for amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like you. Amen. All right, now speaking of all this, I have a rapture question. During the rapture, now this one, this one, you got to listen carefully to the question because this one is a uh, theoretical. They are, they are formulating a theoretical and, um, well, let me just read it to you. Will the children of unaccountable age, below the age of accountability, and a believing wife, who is carrying an unborn child, will all three of them go in the rapture and the unbelieving father be left behind? Okay. Now, walk with me through the, the will the children. First of all, we're dealing with the age of accountability. If you don't know what the age of accountability is, for every human being on earth, only God knows when you can actually be held accountable for not receiving Christ, for rejecting the Holy Spirit and, and the call of God to be saved. We know, for instance, David's newborn baby 
went to heaven because David said, I can't go to him or I can't bring him back to me, but I will go to him one day. So there was an age of accountability. And for every child, it's different because you've got different intelligence levels, different sensitivities uh, to the things of God. You've got different abilities in every child. So I believe the age of, account- of accountability is, is, is not a set age. I believe it's in flux. Only God knows that age for each child. Now they want to know, when, so here I am, this woman wants to know, I'm, I'm in a home and I've got a child below the age of accountability and I'm pregnant and I believe in Jesus and I've got an unbelieving husband. When the rapture happens, will all three of us go and he be left behind? Now the, the, the Bible is silent. The Bible doesn't talk about the rapture and children under the age of accountability. It's silent on that. It doesn't comment on that. So, I, so when the Bible is silent, you have to look uh, elsewhere in the scriptures and look for principles that can answer the question without it being just bluntly answered in the pages of the word. So my own opinion would be that they would go. That the child below the age of accountability, the pregnant mother and the unborn child in that womb would go. Because here's why I say that. Who would raise those children if mom is taken? Let's say it's mom and dad. Who would raise those children if mom and dad are taken? Someone would, who would encourage them to take the mark of the beast if they were left behind. Who would raise them but a godless home? Does that sound like the faithfulness of God? I don't think so. Based on his mercy, I believe. Now, this is just conjecture because I don't have a verse for this. But I believe God would keep the family together, and that includes an unborn child. Why would you leave a child behind um, for heathen to raise that child who are, who are wide open to getting the mark of the beast? Why would you leave that child behind? Now, again, this is Jeff speaking. I am not saying, thus says the Lord, because it's not there. Are you all with me? As for the unbelieving father, no, he would not go because a loved one doesn't save you. Mama's faith isn't going to save you. Daddy's faith, grandma's faith is not going to get you into heaven. You've got to have your own faith in Christ. You've got to have your own experience with Christ. You've got to be born again on your own. You're not taking anybody's coattail into heaven. Oh, grandma, hang on. I'm grabbing. Oh, no. You're le- if you don't know him yourself, you're left behind. Now they ask a second question. If both mother and father are non-believers, both mother and father are non-believers, will the children in their household of an, uh, a, under the age of accountability and an unborn child go in the rapture, leaving both the parents behind? Or will the whole family be left behind to go through the seven-year tribulation? I can't answer it because the Bible is silent. It's silent. I would like to think the Lord would take the children under the age of accountability because they don't know better. But the Bible, there's no verse on this, okay? If you want to go Old Testament, when judgment fell on the Old Testament, mom, dad, children, all the way down to babies, they were all taken in judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were all taken. But Lot, his wife, and two grown daughters. In Noah's day, when the flood came, they were all taken in judgment. They all, they all perished. 
but Noah and his family. But that's the Old, Old Testament. New Testament, I would like to think that Jesus would not leave two little children, that he would take them, lest they be raised in a godless home and get the mark of the beast and all that. But I'm not him. Here's what I do know. I believe in the character of my God. And I want to quote Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. How many of you know that's true? Come on. He will. Amen. So that, that's a, and again, that's a theoretical and they, they threw that at me and all I can do is answer it with conjecture. But I believe that God will do what is absolutely right. Amen. Next question. The book of Daniel says that the temple will be recreated in the last days during the reign of the Antichrist. Currently, the Dome of the Rock is in the way of the area where the temple originally stood. Is the removal of the dome a necessity for the temple to be rebuilt? Now, if you don't know what the Dome of the Rock is, it is the key place in all the world where Muslims uh, worship. I've been in it. I went to Israel and I went in it. And it was a real... uh, Now, I didn't go in there and worship. I went and stood and observed way far at the back. And um, I'll leave the experience to your imagination. But I don't want to comment on it much, but it was um, interesting. Now, so the Dome of the Rock Rock is right there. You know that it's in Jerusalem. And here's the deal. The Dome of the Rock is right now where people say the temple used to stand. And if the temple has to be rebuilt, how will that happen if the Dome of the Rock is there? Now, there's many theories on this. Let me give you two. Some say the Dome of the Rock is not actually standing directly where the original temple stood, so the temple can be built elsewhere. That's one theory. Others believe something catastrophic like an earthquake will occur, destroying the Dome of the Rock and opening the door for the rebuilding of the temple. I don't know, but one thing is certain. There will be a rebuilt temple. Now, I base that on what Jesus said. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 24, he's longest prophecy of his ministry. He's talking about the last days. He's telling us what the signs of the end will be. And he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where? In the where? Holy place. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I've taught about the abomination of desolation. Um, The abomination of desolation Jesus is talking about here in the last days will be when the Antichrist walks into the rebuilt temple. He walks into the Holy of Holies that I'm about to describe and explain to you. And he literally says, I am God. Paul wrote in Thessalonians, he will declare, I am God. He'll do this halfway through the great tribulation period. Seven-year tribulation. The first three and a half years, the Jewish people of Israel will believe that they're in a time of complete peace and safety because Antichrist will have brokered a peace treaty with them. So they will believe for the first time since their rebirth as a nation that they are safe, the, the gates come down, the walls come down, 
They believe they're cool as long as the treaty they make with the Antichrist, who they don't know is the Antichrist, is in force. So they've got the Old Testament sacrificial system back in place. They're doing Old Testament religion again. And halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, Antichrist, this man, charismatic, persuasive, brilliant, likable, lovable, appealing, attractive, will walk into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. I am God. And when he does that, it triggers the last half of the tribulation period and all hell breaks loose, literally. The Jews begin to get persecuted like never before. And the world is brought into chaos because now he's not who we thought he was. What's this about? He's no man of peace. And there is a quick march to the worst battle in the history of the world, Armageddon. Now, here's my point. Jesus said, the abomination of desolation has to happen in the holy place, the holy of holies. Well, there there, there can't be a holy place unless there's a rebuilt temple. Right? Can't be a holy place. Can't be a holy of holies if there's no temple. The temple's got to be rebuilt for there to be a holy of holies for the Antichrist to walk into and do this. Now, let me just remind you a little bit about the holy of holies and just give you a little teaching tonight on it because it's really powerful. The, the holy place was called the Holy of Holies. The holy place Jesus talks about, the Holy of Holies. It was the sacred innermost room in the temple where only the Ark of the Covenant sat. Now let's talk about the Ark. When I say the Ark, you think of In Search of the Lost Ark, right? You think of Indiana Jones and all of that. But let me tell you about the real one. There was the only thing that sat in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. That's all that was in there, period. Now, the Ark, the real Ark, was a gold-covered wooden chest, three and three-quarters feet long, two and a quarter foot wide, and two and a quarter foot high. So if I want to round the numbers off, I could say four by two by two. Inside the Ark were three important things. A golden jar containing manna, And that represented God's provision. Aaron's rod which budded, which represents God's choosing. And then the tablets of the covenant, meaning the Ten Commandments. Now follow me. Because Jesus, uh, or, or God told Moses to build this for a reason. He was giving you and I a picture, giving you and I an illustration, and the people of that day as well. On top of this ark was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a gold lid. No wonder people have tried to find this thing. It's gold everywhere. But watch this. The mercy seat was a gold lid with two cherubim formed at each end. And their wings kind of reach over. And they create a space where God's glory and presence would appear. The Shekinah glory would appear right there, right there under those two cherubim. The Shekinah glory. Now let's consider what this represents. Inside the ark were the Ten Commandments that God's people, no matter how hard they tried, 
could not perfectly obey. I've taught you about that. God gave the commandments not so that we, knowing we couldn't do them, knowing that we would fail in, in obeying them perfectly, and it, they whipped us into grace. I, I got to be saved by faith through grace because I can't keep the commandments. So God gave the commandments to show us how fallen we really were. We can't obey them. Okay, so inside the ark are these reminders, the Ten Commandments of our failure to reach God's righteous level. All right? They represented God's requirements for righteousness and man's endless frustration and inability to live them out. And on top of the ark, though, above the ark and above these commandments that represented our failure, sat the mercy seat. And it represented the mercy and the grace of God. Now, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies, only him. He went into the Holy of Holies with something tied around his ankle, lest he do something wrong in there and God strike him dead and they can drag him out without having to go in themselves. All right? He would go in, he would burn incense, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat of the ark. And the Shekinah would appear. By doing this, the high priest atoned for his own sins and those of the people. Now, let me just comment on this briefly. How thankful I am that mercy was placed above failure and judgment. Do you catch it? Do you catch it? Mercy, the mercy seat, was above our failure and our judgment. It was above it. It was above it. And God's mercy was manifested in the shed blood of a sacrificial lamb. When the high priest sacrificed that lamb, that's where the Shekinah glory of God was manifested in the place of shed blood and mercy. Wow. And God was telling us, this is what's coming Because even though you have sinned against my commandments and broken my commandments, I'm going to visit you with mercy. Mercy is going to rejoice over judgment. I'm going to send my only begotten son and he's going to shed his blood as the sacrificial lamb of God once and for all, never to be done again. And when he does that, that is when my glory and my spirit are going to appear in the place of mercy, and I'm going to send my spirit not into another place built with the hands of men, but I'm going to send my spirit into you, and you're going to be the temple of God. I want you to say with me, mercy rejoices over judgment. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen. So now, back to the question. The question is, the Dome of the Rock, something's going to happen, happen with it, or the temple will, will be built somewhere else, but it's going to be built. I, I know I've read many, many times, the plans are already there, and people are looking for a, a place and a way, the Jews are, to rebuild it, and, and Christians. So one day, when you hear about that temple being rebuilt, I mean, get right with God quick. Next question, what's the easiest way to explain the Trinity? I told you these were mind benders. Let me quickly go through it. This person says, I was always taught about the Trinity, but need a little more explanation. When it says God is three persons, but one God, does that mean we will stand in front of three or one? 
Then they say, I know I'm probably overthinking it, but I want you to know how to, or I want to know how to understand it so I can explain it. I was witnessing to someone at work who is Pentecostal oneness and realize it's very confusing. I don't believe what they say is correct, but I'm not sure where to start. In other words, how to answer them. All right, let me begin. Let me tell you about Pentecostal oneness quickly. What is it? Pentecostal oneness is the belief that the Godhead consists of only one person and denies the traditional doctrine of the Trinity. We say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. But a Pentecostal oneness person said there's only one member, there is no Trinity, there's only one God, there's no Trinity. They maintain that the only real person in the Godhead is Jesus. So they're often referred to as Jesus-only people. How many of you ever heard of Jesus-only people? Anybody come out of Jesus-only or still in Jesus-only? All right. If you are, buckle your seatbelt. Now, Jesus-only. They say you got to baptize only in Jesus' name. You don't baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They have all kinds of things. Now, they maintain that God exists in two modes or two ways, as the Father in heaven and as Jesus the Son on earth. Nevertheless, they are the same person, they contend, not two separate persons. The Holy Spirit is not regarded as a person at all, merely a manifestation of Jesus' power or a synonym for Jesus. Right there, I got to leave that teaching because over and over again, the Holy Spirit is referred to with personal pronouns. He, him, his. If, if he isn't it, why isn't he called it? Why is he called a he? Because God knows how to talk. Moving on. Several verses are quoted to establish this view. Let me just give you one. Colossians 2.9. For in him, now this is what the Pentecostal uh, oneness people say. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So oneness theologians argue that if the Father and the Son were separate, then the Godhead could not fully dwell in Christ, but would be divided amongst the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My response would be that Colossians 2.9 does not teach that the totality of the Godhead was in the body of Jesus, but rather Jesus embodied the totality of the divine nature and God was totally revealed in him. That's the way I see it. If the Father and the Son are the same person and there's no Trinity, then the oneness teachers have a real hard job explaining how the Father and the Son can love each other and I give you verses to look that up, talk to each other, give you more verses, and know each other. How can you love someone, talk to someone, and know someone if that someone is you? Right? Unless you are a major narcissist. You stand in the morning in the mirror and say, there is none like you. I know people that I think may do that. Now watch. Now, as for the Trinity, let me talk about the Trinity quickly and explain it to you, and then I'm going to have to close. The Bible teaches that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet the Bible also teaches there's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is how many? One. Yet, 
he is comprised of three distinct personalities. So there is one God comprised of three distinct persons. Say, Pastor Jeff, that doesn't make sense. That warps my brain. That's right, because we're talking about God. So here it is. God is three persons. Each person is divine. And there's only one God. You say, I can't go there. That turns my brain into a pretzel. Let me, the closest I can come to it is this. Water can appear as ice, as liquid, and as steam. But all three are water. Now, I don't think that's perfect, but it's okay. Let me show you where God makes it very clear there is a three-in-one trinity. Ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. Now, the word God, where he says God, first mention of God, is the fourth word in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. That word God is Elohim in the Hebrew, and it's in the plural form. Wait a minute, Moses. Did you mess up, Moses, writing that down? No, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's perfect. Then in verse 26, God speaks to himself saying, let us make man in our image. Plural pronouns. Are you ready? After the fall of Adam and Eve, God again addresses himself saying, behold, the man has become like one of what? Us. Well, either God has problems or he's got it right. There is a plurality. There is three in one. There is a trinity. Let me give you some more. Isaiah the prophet had a visitation from a seraphim, angelic being, during which time he heard God say, now listen, watch this, this is powerful. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So he says, I and us in one verse. So I am one, but there's also an us. When Jesus was baptized by John, this is beautiful. The Bible reveals all three persons of the Trinity in one setting. As soon as Jesus, there's God the Son, was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God. There's God the Spirit. Descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, that's God the Father. So in one setting, Jesus' baptism, you got God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father all there involved in one context. And then my favorite, this is the indisputable home run hitter verse for the proof of the Trinity. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of what? The Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I don't think Jesus had the Trinity wrong. Right? So while it's difficult to grasp, and I close with this, the Trinity is essentially one God consisting of three co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is one God in three divine persons. The three persons are distinct, yet are one substance, essence, or nature. Now, my ushers are moving back to grab those buckets, and thank you, guys. How many of you can say, well, at least I know there is a trinity? Amen? Amen? Amen. Come on. There is a trinity. And, and 
So let's, uh, well, let's stay seated just long enough for them to pass these buckets. And I, and I know I kind of did this suddenly, but it's like the Lord said, just go ahead and start now because, listen, I want to take sound Bible teaching to the world, and I want you to go there with me, and we get to do it free. Can everybody say free with me? After we just get a, few cam- a couple of cameras and a couple other odds and ends, then we're going to go and we're going to do it. We're going to have a really wonderful broadcast. How many of you are glad you came tonight? Are you glad you came tonight? Let's pray together. And guys, if you can just go ahead and uh, let's, let's pray and ask God to help us here. Lord, we just come to you with this need for cameras. Lord, they're not expensive cameras, but they're going to greatly enhance our ability to reach um, all kinds of thousands of people one day. Now, Lord, we pray, help us to give towards this. And Lord, if you would move on some people just to, to make a dent in this need, to, to give to this need, they will be giving to the, to the reaching of so many people who are perishing in their sins right now, but will be saved and fed and reached in Jesus' name.